So let me tell you a story. It's a long story. So to make a long story short, we're going to tell it in six acts over the next six weeks. It's going to take us all of those six weeks to get through this story. It's the story. It's God's story. It's our story. It's your story. Many people come to Scripture and see it as a collection of various types of literature and loosely connected stories. While it is written over 1,500 years, three different languages in times of peace and war, written by people who were powerful and without power at all, who were wealthy and impoverished, some who were free, others imprisoned. While it comes from so many different sources, it actually is a single story of God's love for us and his plan to set the world right. But it's wrong just to call it a story. It's more a drama. The big story of the Bible is meant to be acted out. In fact, you and I have a role to play in this great story, and that's what makes it the story of all stories. I'm going to say something right now that we'll return to at the end of our series. All of us live our lives on stage. All of us follow a script. Even those of you that think you're charting your own course, your script is driven by your society, your times, the group think, the priorities of the culture that you live in. All of us live by a script. We have the opportunity in these six weeks together to learn the script in which we were all meant to live. And so today, we begin with Act One. We call it creation. And because this great story is predominantly the story of God himself, each week we will focus on God's action. And in Act One, it is simply this, God creates. Does anyone guess where we're going to be in Scripture today? Genesis chapter one. First chapter and first verse. And we're gonna read through to the first few verses of chapter two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. There was evening. There was morning. The first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so, God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing, 
plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights, the great light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful. Increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase in the air. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that is fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And so all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So in the seventh day, he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all of his work of creating that he had done. No doubt as I read this passage, lots of 
conflict rose up in a lot of us who struggle with the nature of this description of creation with what science has taught us about the nature of things and, and what uh, we have come to understand is factually true about creation, not theories about it. And so we immediately enter into the conflict between faith and science that has been created over the last two centuries since enlightenment, since modern science, where the church felt a great need to defend as factually true what may not have ever needed to be defended that way. The notion was if we lose the first chapter of the Bible, we lose it all. That's not the point of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 was not written in the modern era. It wasn't written as a science text or a geology text. And this is important. It wasn't written as historic narrative. You see, the Bible has all sorts of types of literature. It has story, historic narrative. There is wisdom literature, there's poetry, there's visions, there's prophetic utterances, there are letters, doctrinal treaties. All these things are different styles of literature. If we're gonna be those who rightly divide the word of God, and I believe every word in it is God's gift to us. If we're gonna rightly divide the word of God, we need to honor not only the words, but the type of literature, the audience they're written to, because it helps us understand it. And this is something that some of you may have never been taught, and that is that the historic narrative in the book of Genesis begins actually in the next verse from what we just read. It begins at the end of the first telling of creation. So we have to deal with the facts that will follow knowing that Moses was writing history as he saw it and understood it. But that's not how Genesis chapter one is written. Genesis chapter one is a highly stylized type of literature. Many would call it a song or a poem. I, I don't think it bears enough resemblance to Hebrew poetry to be called that, but it does bear striking resemblance to what existed in every culture of the time of Moses' writing and that is what's called a cosmogony, a creation tale, an allegory, meant to resolve not how and when creation came into being, but to reveal who and why. You must remember that Israel was coming out of hundreds of years in captivity in a culture that had its own very detailed cosmogony, its own story of creation. Moses was writing a very familiar style of literature in order to teach things about the one who created and why he created. Moses did not envision such a time as we are living in today. And so when we take Genesis 1 and try to teach it as a science, it will always fall short because that's not why God gave it to us. I want to tell you, I believe every word in this is God's word and it's for us. And in order to rightly divide it, I'm telling you, I see Genesis 1 as an allegory. Could God have created in seven days? What's the right answer? Yes. yes. But does scripture require it? And the answer is no. Now let me, let me prove that to you by showing you what 
John does in his gospel, which is a direct parallel intentionally with Genesis chapter one. Now, what is a gospel? It's a biography. It's a historical narrative about the life of who? Jesus Christ, except for what part of John? John chapter one. It's an allegory. And it matches precisely the imagery in Genesis chapter one, when John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made. And then he goes on, he talks about light and darkness. And then he continues and says that word, that's a metaphor for Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of that of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That whole thing is theology taught through allegory. And then he begins his historic historic narrative by saying there was a man sent from God whose name was John and the story picks up. Come on, don't you see that John saw Genesis that way because he mirrors it intentionally in his gospel. So what Moses is communicating to ancient Israel through a very ancient and common form of writing is to straighten out their understanding of who created and why he created. So I'm gonna ask you to look at it that way with me. Are you with me so far? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this. If you look in your notes, there's four, four points. God takes center stage, what Genesis 1 reveals about the creator himself. Secondly, we're going to look at what Genesis 1 reveals about creation. We're going to talk next about how God intended that we, the human race, relate to creation. And finally, we're going to boil it all down to a single word. What word sums up the whole first act of creation? So let's look first of all at point one. The story begins with God sitting at center stage. This God is self-existent. He has always been. Before there was a beginning, there was God. And that's the same language in John 1 referring to Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That's in past perfect tense. In other words, had always been. In the beginning, the Word had always been, had never started. So God is present before what we conceive as time. And then there was a beginning. And so the first thing we see is that God simply is. And the second thing we see is that God made everything else. This would be a startling revelation to you if you had bought into any of the creation ideas of any of the cultures around you. Because demigods, emanations of God, were the creative force. God himself, if there was a supreme being, was so separated from creation that he did not create. The Gnostics held on to this as well in the the first century church. They taught that God could not have created, therefore Jesus was not God, he was an emanation of God, and therefore Jesus could create because the material world is not holy as God is holy. It's a misunderstanding of creation that has existed since time immemorial. So this is where we are. God actually made everything else. Now, let me, let me show you why this is important. If you look at the days of creation, it's broken down into two three-day movements. The first three days, you see 
God creating the stage of creation, the realms. First we see the sky, and then second day the sea, and the third day the dry land. And then the next three days, God fills those different scenes. On day four, he fills the sky with the stars, the sun and the moon. On day five, he fills the sea and the air. On day six, he fills the land with all forms of living creatures. And then at the height of it, he creates man. And we'll come back to that in a moment and discuss that part of it. So it's like he's making a cake. He's putting layers together. But if you were listening to this as a, as a Jewish person who had not been brought up with any written revelation from God, who had best stories about your father Abraham and a promise of deliverance, had never been really taught about this God. The thing that matters here is that while every other creature believed that the sun and the moon were to be worshipped and that they created, and that creatures in the sea were gods who themselves created, the major point that Moses is trying to communicate is that none of those things that you worship, none of them are divine. They were all created. And he very carefully and systematically covers every single aspect of creation for us. He paints the background through the three arenas, and then he puts the details into those three arenas, and he says, you know who made all that? God, the only creator. The third thing we see is that there is only one of him. (laughs) There is a God, and he is the creator. There is no one else to be worshipped. The fourth thing we learn about God is that he is a speaking God. He creates through the word. In fact, we could connect directly and God said to John 1 where it says, in the beginning was the word, all things were made by him, that Christ himself is the ultimate word, the ultimate communication of God to the human race because he is God's word spoken. He is also the word through which God created God spoke, and it was so. How many times is that said? Actually, eight. (laughs) Sorry about that, Noel. Because (laughs) day three and day six, there's two acts of creation in each of those, right? Okay. So actually, eight times God spoke, and it was so. So what we see about God is that he communicates. He's He's not apart from us. He's not so distant that we can't hear him. He communicates and interacts directly with his creation. Fifth, everything God made is good. The English word good just falls short of what the Hebrew is meant there. It's meant to be like perfectly good, perfectly beautiful. Majestic might be a better word. Picture this, God loved it. He loved creating. And he he kept stepping back and going, good. (laughs) This turned out great. (laughs) Everything God made is good. Now, this flies in the face of most religion who thinks that what is flesh is evil. And Christianity has struggled with that itself. We have many forms of Christianity that believe we're meant to deny our natural desires. But here's the truth. All of your natural desires were originally pure and were intended for your pleasure and for God's glory. Now, they're not right now, 
And we're going to find out what God has in mind to fix that. But originally, it was all for good. It was all pleasurable and wonderful, including sex. Sex actually existed before sin. Did you know that? It got screwed up like everything else. But even that incredible pleasure, amen? I better be married people that just said that. <laughs> Even that incredible pleasure was part of God's, in- it was all good. It was all good. And then finally what we see is that when God finished, he rested. Now, this is where some of the, if, you, if you're able to look at Genesis 1 the way we're describing, you begin to look at the style of writing, and you can see some beautiful things communicated through the style itself. There is a numeric cadence in this. Two groups of three, two different sets of creation, each emphasized not only by a different type of creation, the realms and then the creatures or the, those things that inhabited the creation, but each third and sixth have a double act of creation. Each time a day finishes, and by the way, in Hebrew, a day could be anything from literal 24 hours to an epic to a, to a, a designation of some uh, indistinct era. So the, the word day there could mean any number of things. It could simply mean an act, a period of God acting. That could be a very legitimate translation for the word day. But when the day finishes, it says there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and morning the second day. As I read it, I tried to emphasize it for you. Did you catch it? Every time a day finishes, it's only mentioned once. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. But then day seven comes. How many times was the word seven mentioned in the first verses of chapter two? Who knows? Three. Three times. There is a very important crescendo. The main point of Genesis one is to help us understand that God creates, he loves being creative, he's enjoying the whole process, it's meaningful work, that God is doing, it's fulfilling, it's wonderful, the result is magnificent, but then at the end, there's the pause that refreshes. He doesn't collapse out of exhaustion. He just stops working, and he's able to celebrate. And the emphasis numerically helps us understand that the whole act of creation is only stage one to the real party, which is Sabbath. Rest, peace, and It's a waltz. Think about it. One, two, three, one, two, three, seven, 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 one, two, three, one, two, three, seven, seven, seven. Creation is a dance. And Sabbath is its crescendo. Let's quickly move on to point two. All things bright and beautiful. What does Genesis 1 reveal about creation? Let me just run through them. The first is, it's all good, just like we hit on before. But the second part is, it's not God. That was revelation to the children of Israel. There's only one God. 
The Lord your God is one God, the self-existent one, so nothing in creation is God. The third thing we see about creation is that it becomes our responsibility as the human race. God uses three words to describe what our relationship is meant to be to planet Earth. Fill, subdue, and rule. Now, we can take them to give us license to destroy the earth, which evidently we have done, but what we were intended before we became corrupted and used the authority we have over the earth to bring destruction to it, these words were actually meant to be life-giving. To fill the earth carries with it the Hebrew idea of completing it. So in other words, God created us in his image, which means we have intellect, we have affection, we have spirituality, we have the ability of self-determination. All these things are part of God's creation. But being created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, means that we also are creative. We are not creators. None of us actually creates anything because the Hebrew concept of creation is, in the Latin word, ex nihilo, out of nothing, Only God creates, but we are creative. What we do is take the resources that God stuffed the earth with, and we make more of them. So you know what that means? Steel bridges are taking what God put in the earth and making more of it. See, it's not just stone carvings, it's stone buildings, music is taking the sounds that God put in nature, the tones that are existing there, that as strings vibrate and as as hollow things are banged and as our voice changes in tone, all those things that God created. Music is man making more of it, filling the earth with what God made. Does that make sense to you? So we're not just meant to fill the earth with our population, although of course it means that. And that's something I've been very proud to do my part in. (laughs) I've gone there too much today. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry about that. All right, so fill. We're, We're to complete. And then he says also we are to subdue. Now that doesn't mean to dominate. It means to harness, to make much of it in the same way our lives are subdued by God and we become those, blessed are those who are meek, power under authority. We are those who were destined to harness the earth for God's glory. And the same thing for rule. Rule doesn't mean to abuse. It's not authority for its own sake. It's not destructive. Ruling in scripture is beneficent care. God rules over our lives, and it doesn't mean he's pushing us down like this. Rulership is God beneficently reigning over us so that we become everything we're meant to be. Creation, the earth, was our responsibility to take what God had put and making more of it for God's glory. Imagine what earth could have been if all of the creative juice that we have put into it made more of this world instead of destroying it. Just, just think about what was meant to be. It's our responsibility. And then finally, what we will begin to see as we go forward is that creation serves essentially as the stage for the human drama. 
If we see creation as a layer cake that God's building, it says in the beginning, God sets the scene, sky, sea, land. He fills each scene, stars, suns, moons, sea creatures, birds of the air, living creatures. And then he takes mankind and he sets them in a garden. And the whole drama of humanity, mankind who was created uniquely above all of creation, the height of God's creation, his image bearers, and he puts them center stage in that scene, and then he enters into that scene with them, and the drama unfolds. How are we meant to relate to creation in God's initial plan? living, loving, laughing. We were meant, first of all, to see creation as a glorious playground. (laughs) We weren't meant to stay in the garden. It was the launch point. It was the place of our birth. Out of the womb of the garden, we were to make beauty in the whole world. And it was to be as fun for us as it was for God. We were meant to work and create and then step back and go, oh, that's good. That's really good. Creation was meant to be lived through a sacred rhythm. A sacred rhythm that scripture seems to indicate is six days of meaningful labor. Meaningful, life-giving labor, creative labor, and then a seventh day of joyful rest. Not what's become today. Six day work weeks, 80 hours a week. Our day off is the day where we just collapse out of utter exhaustion. God intended that cadence to be a dance that crescendoed into our pausing from meaningful labor in order to celebrate with God in this dance because we've ceased our labor and now we just worship and pause and celebrate the creator, his creation, our reflecting his creation. We were meant to relate to creation with a meaningful responsibility. This charge that we were given over the earth was meant to be our vocation, all of us. And then finally, we were meant to relate to God's creation via a divine relationship. One of the startling pieces of the creation account is that God stepped into that very garden where he had placed humanity and he walked with them intimately. So at the heart of creation, was not just this meaningful responsibility as God's image bearers to make more of this creation for his glory, but we were to do it in an intimate relationship with him where right alongside us he was just looking over our shoulder at everything we're doing and celebrating with us and singing over us, as Zephaniah says, celebrating us as his children, this intimate relationship with the Father. That was the script God wrote. That was the stage he set. And we know that we are far away from that. And the rest of the story will help us understand how we got there and what God has already done and has promised he will yet do in order to bring that reality back to not just you and me, but to all of creation. But if I were to sum up this opening act of creation in one word that would summarize the scene that we see here, it's this word, shalom. 
peace, God's peace. We use the word shalom and interchange it with our understanding of peace. And to us, peace means no hostility, no war. But the Hebrew concept, God's peace, is far bigger than that. It's a state of complete wholeness and well-being. To describe God's peace is to see the earth and creation full of his shalom and everything working in harmony according to God's intention. And that's what we see in Genesis 1. Everything was filled with God's fullness, his perfect peace, everything operating as God had intended it in all of its intricacy and glory to function, all of it ticking away, moving towards the Sabbath of great celebration in due season over and over again in perfect shalom peace. Everything was not just good. It was very good. Now, God says it was good multiple times throughout his creation. That word, I've already told you, means epic, magnificent, but very good doesn't even come close. The English misses completely the idea of very good. It's like good explodes into infinitely good, good beyond measure. It's that good. When he looked at it all, he goes, wow, this is mind-blowingly good. In fact, write that down in, in your, that's the translation we're going to use from now on. And God stood back and saw all he had made and said, this is mind-blowingly good. Because it's all about peace. Peace. Look at, that, look at that word again. Just the one word, shalom. And imagine, based on the events going on in the world right now, how far removed we are from act one. All of us are weeping with Paris right now. Back in April, it was Kenya. Dozens and dozens of murders, hundreds, in the name of God, being committed in the Middle East. Like Longfellow wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and loud and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men, and I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Our life mocks shalom. The reality of this world tells us that something has gone desperately wrong, but in our hearts we all know we long for act one, don't we? We long for act one. We long to be part of that creation. You know why? Because in our deepest part, the Imago Dei still calls out to Creator. As image bearers, we still cry out in our deepest part to God. And as the story unfolds, we'll find out how we found this tragic state, but how by God's grace and through His Word made flesh, we can come back. We all have a place in the story. Stay with us. We'll find it together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Prince of Peace, Jesus, in a season where we celebrate peace and goodwill for all. And we know that our world is far from a peaceful place. And we cry out why, but if we just took a look in our hearts, we know our heart is anything but a peaceful place. 
We are the sources of the conflict, our brokenness, our woundedness. Before we cast stones at others, we need to look at our own woundedness and recognize that we all contribute to the war against peace. Father, I pray in this journey we would be so caught with what you intended and understand that you are at work right now to bring about that transformation, that we would first be a place, a dwelling, where you come into our beings and where you knit deep within us the peace that passes all understanding and make us instruments of peace in this season, where the world looks once again to Bethlehem and to the world that became flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.